On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, episode 303, Clarissa Sorensen Unruh and Sean Michael Morris join me for a dialogue about critical pedagogy in STEM. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's episode brings us not one but two guests. First off, Clarissa Sorensen. Unruh has been a full-time chemistry instructor at Central New Mexico Community College in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She now teaches statistics at Central New Mexico Community College as well. She's a dual degree graduate student, an MS in statistics, she's graduating this year, and a PhD in learning sciences in 2022 at the University of New Mexico, where she's also listed as adjunct faculty for the chemistry and chemical biology department. Her first book, Communicating Chemistry Through Social Media, in which she's both the main editor and a chapter writer, was published by ACS Books in 2018, and she contributed a chapter on her experiences with ungrading in the classroom to Susan Blum's upcoming, which I can't wait for, by the way, upcoming ungrading, Why Rating Students Undermines Learning and What to Do Instead one of the newest members of the Teaching and Learning in Higher Education book series by West Virginia University Press. Sean Michael Morris, who has been on the show a number of times previously, is back today. He's a senior instructor of learning, design, and technology in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Colorado at Denver. He's also the director of Digital Pedagogy Lab, an experiential exploratory professional development gathering for a global digital pedagogy community, and he is the former director and managing editor for Hybrid Pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching, and technology. He's been working in digital learning environments since 1999, and he's committed to engaging audiences in critical inspection of digital technologies and to turning a social justice lens upon education. Rissa, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed, and Sean, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. I recently wrote a blog post about the exciting news that for the first time we are taking teaching in higher ed on the road, and it's to a place, to an event called Digital Pedagogy Lab. And today we're going to share a little bit about that, but mostly going to be talking with Rissa about her view on critical pedagogy in STEM. But before we get there, I want to hear from each of you. Have you ever gone on a road trip that's particularly memorable to you because it was really good or it was really, really bad? Do either of you have a story on a road trip? Of course. Yeah. I'm going to take an odd take on this. I actually backpacked through Europe when I was 23 with my wife. And that was maybe a road trip. It was a a rail trip. (laughs) And it was awesome. Awesome on every level. But I remember 
I have a very set need to make sure that we have a place to stay and everything's set up. And I remember that we were sitting in the train station in Copenhagen, waiting to get on a train for Amsterdam. And we were like three hours early and we missed the train. And that was the only time that I have officially freaked out. (laughs) And my wife, who's awesome, was just like, oh, I remember that the travel people and national travel, hey, we'll get you some things in Copenhagen. So let's go see them. Had the best experience that night (laughs) in Copenhagen. So yeah, so I guess that's my story for being on the road. That's very cool. Mine actually has to do with your state, Rissa. When I was younger, I drove down. I was going to go to a uh, camping in a national forest that's really far south in New Mexico. Yep. And drove down there, drove to where I was going to camp and thought, no, I don't want to camp. And so I decided to drive back to Denver. <laughs> so I was going from Denver and I decided to drive back to Denver, but I couldn't make it all the way. So I stopped in Albuquerque. Never been in Albuquerque, found the worst possible hotel on the night of the Oscars and sat in this terrible, terrible hotel that was so horrible. I slept on top of the covers. Oh, no. Because I didn't want to get underneath. I didn't want to even like pull them back. And so that's been my experience of Albuquerque. I would love to have a different experience of Albuquerque at some point, but that's been my experience of Albuquerque. So that was probably the the, the opposite of your your very good, wonderful experience in my sort of like, oh my gosh, where have I ended up? I invite you to Albuquerque anytime you'd like to come, Sean. We will make it work. All right. And <laughs> give you a better experience. We didn't travel very much when I was growing up, but but we did often go to a desert here in I think it's California. Yes, it's California called Joshua Tree. (laughs) How sad is that? How far did we drive together? And uh, my grandfather used to have property near the desert. And I can recall my dad, he really liked to listen to music. And so I I hear certain songs today and still feel like we're driving out to the desert, including some songs by Steely Dan that come up for me in terms of those memories. And so I just think about how much we associate music with memories. And so when I think about going on a road trip, I think about just how music is so intertwined with it in my mind and that certain songs remind me of certain trips. And yeah, so that's that's my little road trip. I'm excited we'll be taking our kids there. That's kind of like we sandwich the vacation with <laughs> something like this. In case you can't tell, I don't take vacations very well. I really enjoy, I'm enjoying the thought of how challenging this will be for me to try something new. I'm going to try recording their live for the first time. And actually, I'm thinking maybe I'm going to try to record live beforehand as a test, but, but it'll be the first time <laughs> doing it live on the road, so to speak. Let's not try to do everything new all at once. And then I think it's, I always think it's so healthy for our children to get to see us in capacities like that. And I wanted to say one thing actually before we kind of get into the meat of our interview, and that is people might remember that my book just recently came out and I got to hold it in my hands two nights ago for the first time as we're recording this. And I mentioned in an email to Sean that I had that he and Jesse and Maha show up in the acknowledgments part of it. And I was just reflecting on how much this community of people through hybrid pedagogy, through digital pedagogy lab. I mean, just how much I've been able to learn. And Rissa, that's why I was excited to get a chance to meet you. I feel a little bit like Sean is introducing 
me to you today and just that that continues to expand just our ability to work in solidarity to really be able to serve learners from all over the world really well. So Sean, why don't I pass it to you to sort of bring Rissa into the conversation, maybe talk a little bit about how the two of you met and then start out with some questions. Sure, sure. So we were actually just reflecting on on how we met and so many of the people that I meet, I meet sort of on Twitter. I, I meet randomly i happen to see a tweet i happen to then link to their blog post and then suddenly i'm following and that's actually how I'm, i met mahabali that's how i met sherry spalich that's how i met rissa and the idea of meeting of course is is different you meet them online you meet them on twitter um, you meet them through you know a personal learning network or whatever you kind of like ricochet around inside of a network is so fascinating because i mean i've met people online and had really meaningful conversations with them in spaces where i can't see their face and then met them in person and not recognized them at all. Like literally like, walked <laughs> by them, having no idea that that was that person. And it's it's interesting because they because the position I hold, for example, at Digital Pedagogy Lab as the director, people recognize my face. And they come up to me and they're like, hi. And I'm like, oh, gosh, who are you? <laughs> and then as soon as they tell me either like their Twitter handle or their name, I get it, right? And then it's in there. Yeah. But, because um, I, I meet a lot of people through their emails to me and that sort of thing. But it's really fascinating. And I think, actually think this, this kind of gets around to the ideas of, especially critical digital pedagogy, which we work a lot with the Digital Pedagogy Lab and, um, and hybrid pedagogy and sort of all throughout my, my work is around that. Because critical pedagogy sort of insists on a, on a human connection in teaching and learning. So yeah, so it's really, I mean, it's really amazing the people that you can meet in these virtual, in these virtual situations and then begin to feel really close with them. Mm-hmm. And that really happened with, with Rissa. The first time that I, it's funny because you, you want to say met, met Rissa, but actually it's sort of more like noticed mm-hmm. because Rissa was already online. We yeah. were already probably following each other, but it was mm-hmm. the first time that it sort of like called out to me that I should pay attention to this person or, or that she stood out in a certain way. And it was when she applied to be a fellow at Digital Pedagogy Lab. And she knew she couldn't come that year. And so instead, she wrote a blog post as her application. And it answered all the questions in the application. And it was this really lovely, wonderful blog post about critical pedagogy and kind of all of this, all of the sorts of things that DPL is all about. And I think what really stood out for me was that she was coming from a STEM field. And we rarely have anybody writing about critical pedagogy or critical digital pedagogy from STEM fields. In fact, most of the time, I've been sort of confronted by people in STEM saying, well, critical pedagogy can't work because there's, you know, facts are facts and truths are truths, and we just have to know these things. And I don't know what to say back to that because facts are facts. <laughs> and, and so I was really intrigued by, oh, this is this person who's doing wonderful work in critical pedagogy in STEM. And so I was really, I was really interested in that more. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why I hoped we could get together with this, in this conversation, because I think there's a lot of questions I have for you. Thank you for that. That's awesome. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation, because sort of like you too, Sean, I get that concern a lot from people, and, and not specifically just around critical digital pedagogy, but all sorts of aspects of teaching comes up, well, that, you know, that wouldn't work in my field. And I feel so grateful for so many of the STEM people that have come on the podcast in the past and invested their time, but I still am so clumsy with examples. 
I'm literally trying to, you know, it's like, oh, well, my son's really into rocks right now. And the other day he asked me what my favorite, and I was just like, I can't even keep up with our eight-year-old son on this stuff. How am I supposed to do it with people who have been studying this stuff for decades? So you are here with us today. Rissa, um, perhaps we could start out with where you first heard about that such a thing as critical digital pedagogy even existed. Where was that? Where did you first bring that into your own awareness and your own discipline and your own teaching? Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a big question because I tend to think about active learning and critical pedagogy has a lot of overlap. At least it, it's a different way of thinking about how you want to present the material and what kinds of boundaries you're placing around particularly oppressed groups. But the idea of not talking at a class was something that I really came from in terms of active learning first. And so it really goes back to about 2009. I had been teaching for seven years and was kind of bored, right? I was teaching myself a lot of the time. I was very conversational and I was already doing the, I'll present one you know, example of a problem. And then you, y'all in my class will do a couple of practice problems together in dyads or whatever. But I was kind of bored with the whole notion of talking at a class anymore. And so I was really interested in different ways of reaching my students. And in fact, I got pretty unhappy with my own thoughts about teaching. I had always hung my pedagogy on this idea of critical thinking, that I was building critical thinking skills in my students, which I thought were generalizable. And from the research, we know that that's probably not true, right? But the idea there was that I had hung all my pedagogy on this idea and that I had no way to assess that well or to really connect with folks in a way that made me feel like we're building more than just a relationship. We're actually building some learning skills that you can carry over for your future. And so that realization and reflection on my own pedagogy and what I was doing really led to several things. One was working at UNM at the University of New Mexico to build bridges between our departments, but that also was a moment in learning how to do active learning. So we did muddy points. We did short reading quizzes beforehand. And we had a whole active learning idea from that. That was in 2012. And it also resulted in me going back to school. I actually went back to graduate school starting in 2014 because of the assessment piece that I felt like I didn't assess students as well as I would like to. And I didn't know how to make that work. And so I went back to really find out more about that. But From the beginning, there was this underlying idea of this is a relationship that we're building, and I would like to build this relationship in a way that helps you as a student, because really, you're the one who has to learn the material, not me. (laughs) I kind of already know it, or at least I will after I've done this class a couple of times. And so I felt like that piece of really being emergent and being thoughtful about what the actual context of each student and what they're going through, what their narrative is, really came to fruition 
probably when I started being active on Twitter. So Maha was instrumental in hitting me over the head virtually, of course, and <laughs> saying, yeah, uh, some of the things you're doing probably are not the best things you could possibly do. But several folks, my PLN grew and several folks contributed to that. And I could go through a laundry list of folks about what that looks like. And it's just grown since. So applying to that first digital pedagogy fellowship, even though I couldn't do it, was really, I think that was the idea. Someone suggested that to me. Was I the Maha or it was someone? Someone said, you should apply for this fellowship. And I was like, well, I can't because... I don't have the time. I have another conference at the exact same time. So how about I blog about it? Maybe Laura Gogia? I don't know. It was it was some combination of folks. Yeah. And so we were like, okay. And so I blogged about it and that was the beginning. The beginning of the end. No. Because now it's just downhill from here, right? Just like, Um, nope, nope. There's nothing no going back at this point. So I I recently read a, an article, it's actually not a recent article, but I only read it recently, that sort of had uh, a critique about critical pedagogy. And that was that Paulo Freire, who sort of was the grandfather of critical pedagogy or whatever, seemed to think that his way was the only way and that he was right about all these sorts of things. And I've never felt that way about critical pedagogy. I've always felt that critical pedagogy itself is very flexible and has to be able to grow and change with the times and with technology and with audiences and and our new awarenesses of justice and, and social justice and that sort of thing. But I'd be really curious for you, because you said active learning and the relationship piece, I'd be curious for you how you define, especially within a STEM context, how you define critical pedagogy, what you think critical pedagogy is. Well, it's, it's really interesting that you ask that because my mom is a retired Methodist minister. So she has a master's of divinity and she went back to school to get that at 45. So I was aware. <laughs> I was present in some of her classes. And so when I first read Paulo Freire, I was trying to describe this to my mom. And I was like, it's liberation theology, except instead of churches, you have schools. And she was like, oh, yeah, perfect. Because she was a big fan. And that was actually in the same kind of area at the same time that Palafor was doing this. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense in lots of ways. So when I think about critical pedagogy, my definition has actually changed over the last four years, mm-hmm. because I'm trying to be as open to the possibilities as possible. But what I really liked recently is I read an article on crystallized identity, which is not what it you think it means one thing. It doesn't mean that. So Crystallized Identity by Tracy and Trelawney, and it's a 2005 article, and I can send it to you guys, is really interesting because basically it's talking about identity instead of doing this fake self versus real self dichotomy stuff. It is a multifaceted, emergent, ongoing kind of understanding of who you are as a person. And so I think of actually critical pedagogy like that. It has lots of facets. It has lots of different pieces. Crystals are actually developed differently, right? They're growing at all times, but they actually have different structures underlying them. And so I think that idea of how you put it together is different, but the pieces that we have in common are these pieces of care 
for students of wanting to hear where they are and recognizing that learning is really their journey and we can journey together and I can be part of that. But the, the journey itself, I'm kind of a, a bystander. I want to be part of, with you for this part of the path, but the whole path is yours. And, you know, it doesn't really matter how, which way you get up the mountain. It matters that you got up the mountain. So in terms of how that manifests for different groups is really based on the instructor, the context, what it looks like for us. But the idea of, you know, Paulo Freire's of transforming society by paying attention to oppressed groups and mm-hmm. by making sure that we're giving students maximum agency and that there's a social justice piece to the class, I think is the important stuff. So you teach chemistry, right? I teach chemistry and statistics. Statistics. Okay. So, well, I can actually see a, a statistics having a social justice side of it, certainly within sociology it would, but I'd be really curious, where do the ideas of Paulo Freire, Bell Hooks, Henry Giroux, all those folks, how do they fit into teaching chemistry? Well, let's go to two tracks on this, and I'm going to try to summarize this real quick. I was really struck, and this is going to be part of my recommendations, by Jesse Stommel's article, The Human Side of Teaching in the AAUP, which was released yesterday. And the phrase or the sentence that stuck out for me is that teaching is a radical act. And it is. It's It's a radical act. It is a radical act because it's very human. And it's a radical act because it is transformative and because we have the possibility of really helping folks along their learning journey. And so for me, you could take this in two ways, right? What kind of skills and what kind of learning techniques, what kind of things am I trying to help my students build in order to be able to take it out of my class? And for me, it's always been a matter of, Well, you may be able to be successful in my class, but you may get to a class where you don't have an instructor who cares. And that unfortunately sometimes happens in STEM. It happens everywhere, but it happens in STEM. And so how are you going to succeed in that class? So what skills am I building that will help you get there? And a lot of those skills come from the ideas of critical pedagogy, right? So how are we going to be able to form communication? How are we going to be able to really think about what our learning journey looks like and how to assess that? And how are we going to figure out, you know, the resources that we need to be able to really get this material and to build relationships with other people in our classes? And so some of that is based off of what I call the hidden goals of our classes, right? So the hidden learning objectives, the things we would never write down because we can't measure them easily. But of course, we're going to have as part of our class. And then the other piece of that is really talking about how we phrase the questions in the content. So speaking about chemistry, you said, Sean, where is social justice in chemistry? And I say, As a reply, where is social justice not in chemistry, (laughs) right? We could have a whole conversation about the Australia bushfires and how are we going to, after the fires are done, how are we going to be able to test the soils, 
How are we going to be able to figure out the pH, all of those kinds of pieces so that they can repopulate with plant life and wildlife that is indigenous to the area as opposed to invasive species, mm-hmm. right? That's just one question mm-hmm. that we could talk about in terms of chemistry, making sure that we talk about female chemists who have come along and are, have been really critical to the development of our models and theories who aren't talked about as much as they should be, right? right? Making sure that those pieces are there. But in terms of a a specific example, in my statistics class, I made up a data set (laughs) because I was like, hey, why not? Because I wanted them to analyze it. And in the gender column, I put male, female, or other. And I actually had two gender students in that class who were like, the fact that you had an other category was really important to us. It was really like fundamental to feeling up accepted in this. And that was one set of questions. So where can't we put this? Yeah, I like, I really like that example. It's, it's such a small effort just to put the other in there that allows for more people to participate or feel like they're invited in. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. So you're going to be teaching at Digital Pedagogy Lab. I uh, am. In 2020, you're teaching a course on STEM H and critical digital pedagogy or something. I forget the exact title, which I should know. But <laughs> It's um, close enough. It's fine. But yeah. A lot of critical pedagogy feels very second order, right? Mm-hmm. It's thinking about thinking. It's thinking about mm-hmm. learning. Mm-hmm. So you're doing learning, but you're also thinking about the learning. And so that's part of what is challenging for some people because like, well, how do I incorporate that into my curriculum? There's mm-hmm. this get done. That's a big critique from STEM about critical pedagogy. It's like, well, they need Mm -hmm. to know things before they move on to the next thing. Right. Um, So when you're teaching at DPL, you will have people in your group, in your room who want best practices, who want, how do I do this in my room? And one of the things you just said, the, including the other, like that's a very great example, but I'd be curious, and maybe I'm going to put you on the spot here, but I'd be curious, (laughs) how are you going to teach this sort of thing to other STEM people who are curious but may not understand the application so i'd be curious to see what like what do you have in mind for that that course in the summer okay yeah we've we've talked a lot about this and one of the things that i really love about the dpl and teaching at the dpl i think i said this in a previous virtually connecting moment but it allows me to exist in the playground of my mind I get to play with ideas and structures and kinds of ways of thinking that I don't normally get to play in. And so for me, we currently have themes for each day. So we have like an open day, we have a social justice day, we have even an active learning day, because that may be where some folks are starting. That's going to be at the beginning. And so we have themes for the day. We're going to have some readings for the day. But really, our goal is to, in many ways, model the behavior, kind of give folks a sense of that this can be done differently. So we can have a conversation that is emergent and that is based off of what you're interested in and based off of questions that you have and that you're bringing to the table and then kind of say, you know, our students are no different than this. They have questions about what the material is and how they want to learn it. And being open to those ideas 
and trying to incorporate them into our classes as much as we possibly can. There's 40 different ways to cover quantum mechanics and chemistry. Could we come up with some way that maybe thinks about how the students want to learn it? And that to me is the basis of really getting folks to kind of have a paradigm shift, right? This is essentially talking about what is the paradigm shift that we need to go through. And it's a reflective journey that you have to embark on to be able to figure out how you're going to make this happen for you in the context of how you do things and what the context of your classes look like. And so I think a lot of our class is going to be about reflection and really trying to figure out what facets of that critical pedagogy you can incorporate and feel like at least this is a step in whatever direction I want to go, right? I'm, I'm here for a reason. I'm not here to necessarily, <laughs> I don't think anyone is going to attend the DPL just to be belligerent. <laughs> like, no, you, you have never no know. Wrong, right? Let's <laughs> <laughs> hope. Um, but I think that there's certainly a piece of, you know, you're here for a reason. Let's figure out what that reason looks like for you. And let's figure out how to help you incorporate that into your own pedagogy. And so I have chemistry and st- math-ish, you know, I'm in statistics. It's not quite calculus, but, you know, we can work with it. And then Anna's going to bring the biology side as well. And we both teach a lot of health science folks. And so working within the LMS, that's something that she's particularly good at, at finding ways to have maximum student agency within the LMS. I'm really good with kicking the LMS to the side (laughs) and saying, okay, here's all these other ways of thinking about how to reach folks digitally and in person. You've both given us so much to think about, as you always do. (laughs) And one one of the themes I hear coming out of this, not the only theme, but one theme that I'll just wrap us up with is this really big transition between thinking about teaching as covering material. And of course, in the STEM fields, that really, really shows up. I've got to cover the, cover the stuff to I'm hearing you talk about reigniting our students' imagination and their curiosity. Mm-hmm. And that's a real fundamental shift that I don't know I'm ever going to have fully achieved. But I just see so many ways in which it comes back to that. Before we get to the recommendations segment today, I just wanted to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. What Text Expander lets you do is to save typing and boost your productivity. You create, and it's very easy, by the way, you create what are called snippets, and these are just a few characters on your keyboard that you type. As soon as you press space, they expand into either something you can't remember, like for me, it's always my work phone number, or something that you just don't feel like typing every time. For example, if I type in the letter B, followed by the at sign, and then followed by IL, it automatically expands to be my email address for our Innovate Learning emails. And same thing, I've got one for Dave, and I've got some shortcuts for phone numbers, and I even have some shortcuts for things that are a little bit more extensive, like the show notes. And it'll pop up and say, what's the date of the show? When does it get produced? Who's the guest? And it really formats everything really well and consistently. And you can visit textexpander.com slash podcast for 20% off your first year. 
there are all kinds of educators who are up there so you can find out what other people are doing and even share your snippets with other people and you can download ones that other people have created. I highly recommend that you check out Text Expander. It is one of the essential tools for me. It's one of the first things I download anytime I get a new device. Thanks again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode and head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast. Well, we're going to wrap up this part of our conversation and head on over to the recommendations segment. And I have two quick recommendations and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to share. First off, there was a post by Jesse Stommel about ungrading a frequently asked questions. And he has written quite a bit about this, but I just thought this one's definitely worth a worth a read. So I'm going to encourage people to go over there and have a read. And then the second one is go to the Digital Pedagogy Lab website. And I've linked to that in the show notes and go check it out. See if it fits in your schedule for the summer. There's going to be a much larger group than has been able to be accommodated in the past. How, how many classes? Sean, are going on? We've got 16 classes. We're expecting about 250 people. Yeah. So go check it out and see if it'll fit in your schedule. And I mean, the classes are just amazing. I am super excited about getting to be there and getting to learn from so many just phenomenal educators. So go check it out. And Rissa, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. So my recommendations are, uh, one is a philosophical one which is I have a lot of folks in STEM who are like, well, what if it doesn't work? And remember that we're experimental folks. We are experimental by nature. And so to be experimental in the classroom is something that I think we can all accomplish. And then the recommended readings, Terry McGlynn in Small Pond Science wrote a really interesting blog about are critical thinking skills generalized? Are those able to be generalized. And I'm actually going to write a response blog, but that was a really interesting blog and the article that he attaches by Wilmingham or Willingham is is really good. And then the other one I was going to recommend was, of course, the one I've already mentioned, which is Jesse Stommel's AAUP blog. Uh, no, it's an article in the Academy and is really excellent in terms of talking about the human side of teaching. Sean, what do you have to recommend today? Well, I feel bad because I don't have anything from Jesse Stommel to recommend. <laughs> I was totally going to make a joke, but I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> you better. We've got and as, and a one. And closest, <laughs> closest friend and, 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 and colleague, like, I feel really bad that I have nothing to recommend. <laughs> um, we already covered it. That's what, that's what you, we got, yeah, right? Those we are the most recent it's, pieces. They're amazing. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I have I have three book recommendations, actually. I'm working my way through three different books right now, and they're really different. They're not related to each other at all. The first one is Paulo Freire's Education for Critical Consciousness, which is really great. It's a little drier than some of his work, but it gets to some of the really foundational ways he's thinking, frames his, his view of the world in a way that, that um, I haven't actually heard before. Another one, it's by an author named B.J. Fogg with two Gs. Uh, it's called Tiny Habits, and it's about uh, approaching making change in your life through tiny little changes. And so I'm reading it very bit, and like a little bit at a time. <laughs> and then the other one is because at my my true self is a fantasy reader, um, so I, I read a lot of fantasy. 
and makes me really happy. And I, and I found this book called The Ruin of Kings by Jen Lyons, which is an amazing fantasy book. Really, all these great perspectives happening in it and really smart. So uh, those are my three recommendations. Thanks to both of you for joining me for today's episode. I cannot wait until I get to hug both of you. <laughs> spend some time in person. You can you, you cannot can you can only digitally hug on Twitter. So I'm just really looking forward to connecting and just to all the stuff that's going to happen. The stuff that has been planned and then all the stuff that those expert facilitators are going to allow to emerge in the moment. What a wonderful combination. Yeah, I think it will be amazing. Yeah. It's going to be so it's great. Be to awesome. Thanks so much to Rissa and to Sean for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you would like to see the show notes for today's episodes and all the links that were mentioned and the recommendations, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 303. They also, of course, show up in your podcast player so you can access them there. And they can show up in your email inbox if you would like to subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thank you for listening to today's episode and to being a part of the teaching in higher ed community. If you have yet to recommend the show on your favorite podcast app, I'd love it if you would recommend it to others via that platform so we can continue to grow the teaching in higher ed community. Thanks so much for listening and I hope to see some of you at Digital Pedagogy Lab 2020.